But the most important thing is that we can just get the stop the states from doing what they're doing to change these laws now, put the brakes on that so that we won't have another debacle in 2024. If you have people being elected saying that I will not support, you know, uh, the results of the election if we don't win, that's an anathema to democracy. That's never been the case. That's not what a democracy is defined as. And so we cannot let that happen. We have to pass the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. American democracy may rise or fall on whether we preserve the right to vote. The battle to save voting rights has reached a critical phase. Following Donald Trump's defeat in 2020, nearly 400 Republican-authored bills restricting voting access were introduced in legislatures nationwide. Last year, legislators in every state except Vermont introduced at least one bill restricting voting access, according to the Brennan Center for Justice. By May 2022, 18 states had passed 34 laws restricting voting. These efforts are tied to the false election fraud claims that Donald Trump and his supporters have been spreading since Joe Biden's electoral victory. The new voting restrictions threaten to roll back the rights that were secured in the 1965 Voting Rights Act, which was signed into law by President Lyndon Johnson. The current tsunami of voter suppression laws was triggered in 2013 when the U.S. Supreme Court handed down the decision known as Shelby County v. Holder, which drove a dagger into the heart of the Voting Rights Act, in the words of the late Representative John Lewis. The Shelby decision rolled back key elements of the Voting Rights Act, unleashing the wave of voter suppression laws targeting communities of color. Greg Moore has been a key participant in the battle for voting rights. He was the executive director of the NAACP's National Voter Fund, coordinating national programs promoting voting rights and registering more than half a million voters nationwide throughout his career. He previously served as legislative director and chief of staff for Congressman John Conyers, where he helped steer the final passage of the so-called Motor Voter Act of 1993. He's currently CEO of the Promise of Democracy Foundation, a nonprofit organization focused on protecting democracy, voting rights, and civic education. His new book is Beyond the Voting Rights Act, the untold story of the struggle to reform America's voter registration laws. Greg Moore, welcome to the Vermont Conversation. Thank you. This week, the Washington Post reported that a dozen Republican candidates in competitive races for governor and Senate have declined to say whether they would accept the results of their election contests. Your book is an amazing deep dive into how we got where we are today, but this almost supersedes that. We're talking about an era when people don't even accept the outcome of the vote. I just want to get your response to the news of the day about all of these statewide contenders who are saying they may just ignore the will of the voters. Well, David, again, thank you for having me on. And uh, it's also important to note that very point you just made is is pretty much one of the themes of the book. 
I recount uh, several presidential elections where there were questions and concerns that we had in terms of the progressive community with the election process in Florida and votes not being counted uh, with the uh, uh, irregularities in Ohio in 2004 uh, with long lines of people not being able to cast their vote and for so many problems with the voter registration rolls. And even with the election in 2016 and the concerns we had about that. But in each instance, uh, the, the candidates for president, as well as all of our advocates, we sort of stopped, recognized the results of the election, and moved on to fight another day. And that's not happening now. And a lot of the people you see now saying in advance they're not going to support the results of the election if they do not win is an anathema to the democracy that we all support and we all have built over these years. So that's the, the opposite of what we've been trying to do. We know how to fight for voting rights, but we don't believe in deconstructing our democracy to do it. Right. Let's dive into what you write about in Beyond the Voting Rights Act. You opened the book talking about the concept of American democracy, one person, one vote. Of course, it originally said one man, one vote was one of the first tenets of the Declaration of Independence, uh, and the failure to fully embrace these words and ideas has been and continues to be the broken promise of our American democracy, close quote. I wonder if you could just give us a brief look back on who got to vote and when in the United States, because a lot of people, you know, who, who don't study this history don't realize how long it took after the Declaration of so-called Independence that it was that women, blacks, Latinos, etc., got to actually vote. So run us through that timeline. It's an excellent question, and it is the kind of thing that need to be uh, brought forth early, and that's why I started the book off that way. Obviously, the Declaration of Independence was talking about the need for uh, the original 13 original colonies to express their level of independence. But when it came to building a democracy, a participatory democracy, it was a very limited number of people who were granted that right. So we were talking about white male property owners only who were allowed to even vote for president, to even vote uh, for members of Congress. And even uh, throughout our history, uh, there were resistance to any attempts that would expand that vote. And it took years, almost uh, over a century, it, it took several decades before U.S. senators were even elected by people. They were voted in by state legislators. And those were locked in exclusory organizations as well. So it began at the top where we were excluding African-Americans. In fact, you could count African-Americans as three-fifths of a person but only for the purposes of you know, redistricting, only for the purposes of uh, allocating the number of members of Congress. And so because you had uh, three-fifths of a person for a good chunk of the population, we began this country really at a state of disenfranchisement and, exclusion, and exclusionary politics. And so it took a long battle. Women, half the population of the country were not like, even allowed to vote and to, until the 20th century, until you know, 1919, basically, 1920. The suffrage movement was a long process. The Civil War that took place 
that fought against the concept of three-fifths of a person that's saying that African-American men could be counted as a, 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 a voting representative of the country. Even that it, back in 1865 was not fully implemented. So while there were some states, particularly in the South, that were able to uh, allow black men to vote and black men to be elected to Congress uh, because of the sheer size of the population of African-Americans in the South, the fact is that until women were given the right to vote, that wasn't the case. Then you go on to the Jim Crow laws that basically made it hard for African-Americans to even uh, be able to have representation. And so the fight for the Voting Rights Act grew out of that long, long battle, really to get us to the point where you could say a person is a full person, have the right to vote, and that vote must be respected and allowed to be cast without barriers. That's the central focus of the book, is to say we have had a long struggle with voter suppression. We've had a long struggle with exclusionary politics. This is not just because Donald Trump came in and denied the election results. And the irony is that many of the voting rights uh, reforms that were passed in the 1960s, and again, let me recount, the 1965 Voting Rights Act was passed 102 years after the 15th Amendment. It took 100 years for that to be given the right standing. And then if you look at it, uh, 18 to 21 year olds, if it wasn't for the Vietnam War and the fact that men, primarily men were dying at 18, 19, and 20, before they even had a chance to cast a vote, it kind of made people think, well, maybe we should give 18-year-olds the right to vote. So the student movement, the anti-war movement, was the only reason 18 to 21-year-olds were given the right to vote. So now we have a situation where a good chunk of the population finally had a chance to be enfranchised after over 200, and, uh, over 200 years. And that part of the book that I wrote was about what happened in those years since the 1965 Voting Rights Act that many of the advocates of my generation began to fight to keep that battle going. I want to get to 1965, but not just yet, because I want to uh, really go back to, to to make sure that people understand um, the struggle to get African Americans full rights to vote. And I think a lot of people don't realize, so the Civil War is fought, uh, slavery is abolished, the 15th Amendment is passed. So explain what the 15th Amendment did, and then talk about the myriad ways that the black vote was thwarted in the aftermath of supposedly legalizing vote, uh, voting for African-American men. Absolutely. Well, the fact that the Civil War, the end of the Civil War, brought about a reconstruction period. And as part of that reconstruction, African-American men were granted the franchise to vote. But again, the uh, grandfather clauses, and I can talk about that, basically saying you have the right to vote as long as your grandfather had the right to vote, you know, certain years ago before. Now, the grandfather clause was used by those same reactionary forces that opposed the 15th Amendment to say, well, you can have the right to vote as long as your grandfather had it. And if he didn't have it, you can't have it. And it was adopted by states all across uh, the country. And it was a way to just exclude so many people. But it was just one. Poll taxes was another one. Uh, property 
uh, requirements was another one. Uh, literacy tests was another one. Uh, all of these were barriers that would try to dilute, dilute the black vote, dilute the African-American male vote to stop what was happening in some of these Southern states where African-Americans were being elected senators and congresspersons. They'd stop that by putting those barriers in place and then uh, about being uh, ever being in a prisoner. If you were ever in prison for any reason, there were laws in several states that kept many African-Americans from being able to vote because being arrested was a commonplace in many of these states and many of these eras. And so every single barrier that can put up, property, money, literacy, uh, and then role purging and grandfather clauses, all of that was what was existing between the 15th Amendment and the Voting Rights Act. And so there, there was no straight unbroken line to progress. This took several decades and a couple of centuries to even get to where we are now. So 1965, the National Voting Rights Act is passed. This is almost exactly a century after the Civil War has been fought and won by the North and slavery abolished. But a hundred years later, it takes the National uh, Voting Rights Act. Explain what the Voting Rights Act of 1965 did. Well, the Voting Rights Act of 1965 was the, probably the strongest piece of civil rights legislation ever passed. It allowed uh, Congress to set standards for the uh, ability for states or restrict states' ability to put many of these barriers I just spoke about in place. It put together uh, formulas that would basically require states to have some sort of pre-clearance of any changes to election laws that would violate the ability of this one person, one vote concept. And so if there were uh, election laws that were written locally by the state or county or local governments, those election laws had to be approved in certain states that had a history of racial discrimination in voting. And those and states they were? They were primarily Southern states, Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, Georgia, uh, parts of South Carolina, parts of North Carolina, but even some states in the North where there were enclaves of counties and parts of state that had histories of exclusionary uh, politics in their uh, election laws. So it didn't cover every state, but it covers the, covered the states that had the most egregious records. Those states were required to put, to, first of all, uh, obey all the laws written in the Voting Rights Act that would ensure the right to vote for all people, regardless of race, color, region, all of that was put into the Voting Rights Act. But if you had a state with the history of disenfranchisement, you had to go to the federal courts or to the Justice Department to get your any changes to your election law, any changes to your election law approved uh, before they would go into effect. And that's where we can talk a little bit later, I'm sure, about why the work that's been done to uh, eviscerate the Voting Rights Act has been so destructive to our life today. So one of the things I found interesting was you uh, talked about how the Voting Rights Act of 1965, and this, of course, was sort of a signature achievement of President Lyndon Johnson at the time, which was, uh, you know, an interesting bit of history. This Texan, uh, a state not known for, a, you know, pioneering civil rights uh, for what for a variety of reasons, Johnson 
sort of took up this cause and passed this landmark legislation. Um, and you write that the passage of the Voting Rights Act in 65 was just the first step to guaranteeing that all Americans the right to vote. It then had to be reauthorized every few years. And you know, and you, 1975, 1982, 1992, 2006, and you note that it received bipartisan support, those reauthorizations. It was not, by and large, hugely controversial. Um, when did voting rights become so partisan the way it is now? Well, let me just first say that Lyndon Johnson was was forced into being supportive of the Voting Rights Act. It was John Lewis and Martin Luther King and the Civil Rights Movement that pushed and prodded him. They had just passed the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which was a great achievement. But the right to vote was an even more important. There's a part in the book where I talk about how this was even beyond the uh, Civil Rights Act. The filibusters were led against the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act for the most part, were led by Southern Democrats and not Republicans. Most of the uh, Republicans in that era were supporters of the Voting Rights Act. They were the ones fighting the Democrats in the Congress. And so when I say that this fight is a bipartisan fight, it's a bipartisan history. You said it yourself, 65, 75, 82, 1992, even 2006, those were bills that were reauthorizing the Voting Rights Act signed by Republican and Democratic presidents as conservatives as, as Ronald Reagan, George W. Bush, George Bush, and signed by Democratic presidents as well. So Congress, and in fact, the vote was almost 98 to nothing in 2006, because even some of the most conservative Democrat, I mean, Republicans voted for the Voting Rights Act. It got partisan around this period of time when we had the Supreme Court intervene in 2013. Well, first they intervened a few times in our presidential races in 2008 uh, election for one. But when the Supreme Court struck down a provision of the Voting Rights Act that required pre-clearance in the states that were previously covered, it freed all those states to now go out and begin making restrictive changes to our voting rights as early as 2013. In fact, the first state that moved was North Carolina and, and Texas on the same day of the uh, Supreme Court ruling. That's when Republicans moved to take advantage of the Supreme Court, lowering the gate and letting states now with known history of reenfranch of disenfranchisement free to pass those laws without the requirement of re of of uh, of preclearance. So I want to uh, look at that chronology. You mentioned uh, 2013 is the famous case Shelby versus Holder um, that uh, essentially, as you've said and as John Lewis uh, said, eviscerated the Voting Rights Act of 1965. But something important preceded that and led to that, as you point out in your book, and that was the election of Barack Obama. Explain the connection between the Obama elections of 08 and 2012 and this backlash against voting rights. If I could take one step backwards first, David, the National Voter Registration Act of 1993, 
which is what a lot of book covers, was a law that set one standard in the country for registering people to vote. So the states couldn't have different deadlines for when you could register. It was now one solid set of standards. That law allowed between 1993, when it was passed in 2000, 50, 60, 70 million more people came uh, eligible to vote and were being registered to vote by postcard registration, which was illegal in 27 states, by agency-based registration, which was illegal in a number of states. People were actually arrested for registering people to vote in welfare lines in the 1970s. So this opened the door for so many more African-Americans, young people, low-income people to be a part of that. And in 2004 and 2000, you saw that with the massive turnout of people, 2000, 2004. By 2008, an African-American candidate for president, not the first, because we had Jesse Jackson and Shirley Chisholm and others, but with the real chance of winning, the voter registration rolls swelled up all over the country. Young people, voter rolls swelled all over the country. And it led to a massive turnout that elected the first African-American president, not once, but twice in 2008 and again in 2012. And it was at that moment in 2012 where the Tea Party movement emerged, the fight against uh, Obamacare and the, the whole retrenchment against this new wave of progressive work that was being done with an African-American president leading the efforts. That's when the Supreme Court shoved a decision was cast because Republicans in Alabama tried to stop their uh, state, stop the federal government from changing one of the election laws in their state that was going to make it harder for African-Americans to be elected. And that one law was taken to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court struck that down. And ever since that Supreme Court Shelby B. Holder decision in 2013, it's been a struggle to get that reauthorized, to change the formula so that we can restore the Voting Rights Act to its full strength. Without being able to stop a law from being implemented before it becomes a law, then all you have left is section two of the bill, which says we have to go to court and prove that it was discriminatory. That can take eight, 10, even longer years of litigation and appeals just for one case, instead of having a law that stops you from even enacting that law in the first place. Several thousand laws have been struck down by section three, four and five of the Voting Rights Act because they were able to stop it before they became law. That's gone now. And what it has reproduced is a series of states running rampant and the election of Donald Trump and that whole 2020 election uh, defeat has been fed by the ability the, the inability of Congress to pass a law that would fix the Voting Rights Act, that would restore the Voting Rights Act. So as long as that Voting Rights Act has not been restored since 2013, 2014, 2018, 2020, have seen just an explosion, acceleration of states taking these steps. And the, the, the Trump MAGA movement has accelerated that whole process. So that's why we're in this situation, because the the emergence of the black vote and the youth vote and low income vote created a such a powerful force in 2008 and 12 that it forced a retrenchment from this longstanding law that was 50 years uh, strong. I 
Um, Chief Justice John Roberts, in striking down the in the decision striking down Shelby, um, the 2013 decision Shelby versus Holder, said something. I'm just paraphrasing here, but basically, you know the the racism uh, that existed in the 1960s that re required uh, the the Voting Rights Act it no longer exists. And I'm 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 that's a rough paraphrasing. Maybe you have the more exact quote. How do you respond to why he said we didn't need a Voting Rights Act anymore? Because we were at the point where we were moving through the laws that existed and we were uh, showing that people were being uh, elected, uh, people of color were being elected. But the only reason they were being elected was because of the voting rights act and because of the laws that we had. So when they tell you, we don't need these laws, look what's happening. There's a massive black turnout. The only reason there is a massive turnout is because of the laws that exist. So if they undo the laws that led to the massive turnout, you're going to get a basic a return to uh, exclusionary politics. You're going to get a return to disenfranchised communities. And uh, that's the struggle that we're in today. People who believe that we've gone far enough, we don't need to do anything more, but we're mobilizing voters. And a good chunk of that book is about all the voter mobilization efforts that we've led to turn out the vote, to get our voting rights restored and our civil rights protected. And that's been the struggle. That's been the struggle. So we are really still fighting that battle and trying our best to, um, to keep the, 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 the uh, right to vote front and center. How do you respond to that idea um, that the that Justice Roberts said that uh, you know we don't have that kind of racism anymore? You know the problem has gone away. Yeah. Well, he's living in another world. He's living in a in a in the world that is taking a blind eye. It has blinders on. It's not looking at the fact that we have. Uh, ongoing police brutality, ongoing discrimination in housing, ongoing access to education, ongoing access to health care. The, the, the fights that we're fighting at the local level, at the state level, and the county level are still going on. But if you take away the federal government's ability to provide that undergirding support for these rights, then you leave it to states to do whatever they want, then you're going to have event, you're going to have perpetually states and it's just like the issue on abortion there'll be states where you can have it and states where you can't there'll be states where you have the right to vote and states where you don't have the freedom to vote so the 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 the, the, the fact that we don't need federal legislation that we don't need the voting rights act is based on the idea that we will let states return to the days of jim crow and that's why you hear that so much because jim crow is what happened when there weren't federal guidelines if you take away federal guidelines, you return back to that. So our fight has to go on in the states. And we've been fighting this battle in the states since 2013. And unfortunately, we've not gotten there yet. And in next year, we'll be 10 years without the protection, the full protection of the Voting Rights Act. And that's just something that's going to make it more difficult. And um, my fear is that people are going to say, well, we had a massive turnout again, a black vote. You don't need it. But again, that's us using the only tool we have left to fight this, which is to turn out and vote in large numbers. So we're going to keep doing that until we're, we're creating a sixth circumstance. But I have to say, David, that Congress needs to act and Congress needs to put forth a bill that can pass on a bipartisan basis and be enacted in the law. 
But I'm afraid that if we wait much longer to get that done, the hyperpartisan politics that's out here now is going to stop it from happening um, any time before 2025. And we hmm. just can't allow that to happen. Greg, I wonder if you could just tell us your own personal history with voting rights when you became an activist. Well, this is an interesting story. I don't want to take up your whole show with this, but but um, on my 18th birthday, I went down and registered to vote uh, in Cleveland, Ohio, down at the public library. And, um, you know, I, I was it was one of those places where you can go vote and you had a little sign there that says register to vote here. I couldn't wait to do it. But it was this this visceral reaction. It wasn't necessarily the institution of the library. It was just that an African-American going to try to vote on his birthday in 1978 was probably an odd thing to do. Most 18 year olds were doing other things than going downtown to try to register to vote. And I had a similar uh, feeling on campus when I went to try to vote uh, at the County Board of Elections and uh, my home campus, Ohio University as an 18 year old trying to register to vote. Um, and then I saw it when I worked on the Jesse Jackson campaign. It's well, not that let, let me just ask you, what happened when you went to register to vote? Well, it was more on the campus then the, I got I was able to register to vote in Cleveland with, without a problem, but it was just it was it was just a it was a it's kind of threatening to walk into an institution and say I want to vote I want to register to vote in eighteen that's a, a a milder version of what happened on campus when because I was a student I was told I didn't have the right to vote on campus and I knew that wasn't the case because students were voting and I knew about the twenty this is seventy eight now this is only eight years uh, seven years after the 26th Amendment. And I was told that I wasn't a taxpayer. And they sent me away. And the reality was that I had just come back from the college bookstore and brought my class books. And I was a student working on campus as work study. And I saw I got money taken out of my check for taxes on my work study check. And I paid taxes for my books. And I took those receipts back to the Board of Elections and showed them that I was a taxpayer. And then they uh, said, well, we meant a uh, property taxpayer. But anyway, the, it, it turned out that I filled out the form and I was allowed to vote. But there was a little bit of a resistance there. I was an African-American 18-year-old kid. Looks like I was trying to cause trouble. But all I was trying to do was register to vote for the upcoming election. So uh, this is this is Ohio University is a big university. So presumably a lot of students are registering to vote. Yeah. So, this elections board knows full well that students at your campus vote and vote in large numbers. So were they turning away just thousands of students? I don't think thousands of students were showing up at the board of county board of elections, which was in the courthouse at the time and saying, I want to register to vote. It wasn't a long line of people. It was just me. And it was on the last day of voter registration, actually. And it was one of those things. I tell that story because it is uh, it's how I say, well, this is not that easy to do. Then when I changed my dormitory address, I got taken off the list and I had to go back down again and change my registration because I had the old address. And if you move and if you're up, if registration is updated back then, you got thrown off the list. And so to see that, first of all, you have to actively go and register yourself to vote. And if you didn't constantly go back down there, but the fact that I then was able to say, wait a minute, we have postcard registration in Ohio. I was able to lead voter registration drives on campus to the point where we registered over 6,000 students to vote in a town of 12,000 people. And that made a big difference of saying that the student vote was just as important 
as a vote for people who live there because not only were we paying taxes, we were also contributing to the economic welfare of that system, uh, of that city, not the system, but the university community itself. Now I've learned since then that there are reasons why uh, you have to change and keep your registration list up to date. But for a lot of young people who move frequently or poor people who move frequently, changing your voter registration is not the first thing on your mind. And so it's not as much racism as it is institutional uh, um, barriers. We call them institutional barriers to stop young people, poor people, black people, Latino people from voting because there's things that are built in the system to take you off the rolls, but there's not something that's built in the system to put you on the rolls. Your voter registration is your responsibility, not the state's. And but the state's power is to take you off the list. That's what I was starting to see. There were more people being registered, being taken off the list than being registered. I lived I lived in Maryland uh, and did a voter registration drive there several years ago. We registered fourteen thousand people. I was so happy. But then I saw the number of people who were taken off the list, and it was over you know ninety thousand, eighty or ninety thousand, because they changed addresses and they didn't vote. You could get purged for non-voting back then. So one of the things of the National Voter Registration Act was that it stops you from getting purged for non-voting. It gives you some more room and time to change your registration if you do move. Uh, it allows you to have postcard registration in all 50 states, use agencies like motor voter and welfare agencies to register. So I learned that those institutional barriers is what we needed to fight. And through federal legislation, federal litigation, we've been able to have that fight. So it wasn't just me walking up to a place to vote, but it awakened me to see that this was an institutional problem, not an individual problem that I was having. So this has been your really life's mission since you registered to vote at age 18. Yeah, it was, it was, that's how I got involved. And, um, and because I was able to work on the Jesse Jackson campaign in the 80s, I worked on Capitol Hill with Congressman Congress, who, you know, was a leading voting rights advocate at the time uh, and throughout his career. But what I was saying, uh, David, was that no matter what job I had working on a presidential campaign or working in a nonprofit organization or even working for the Democratic Party, I was at one time Howard Dean's uh, director of the Voting Rights Institute at the DNC. Um, those jobs were because I was still fighting this battle and all these jobs I had. And that's why I thought I better put this in writing somewhere because this, I wanted to just show the connection between this institutional battle to just mobilize people, register them to vote, but then stop the resistance to the reforms we were making, but then still at the same time, register people to vote, turn out the vote, and then uh, build protective uh, barriers around efforts to dilute their vote. And that's been an ongoing struggle for several decades now, in my life at least. We are seeing so many efforts at voter suppression, voter subversion, um, the creativity of uh, the opponents of voting it seems to be boundless. The many ways they're trying to uh, knock people off the rolls or prevent people from voting once they're at the polls. What stands out to you in today's landscape as the greatest threat to voting rights? The greatest threat today, in my view, is the threat of 
people who are trying to bring partisan politics into the election administration process. There's been years of people who are very good civil servants, volunteers for the most part, who administer our elections. And I used to think, oh, these are the people who are stopping me from voting. No, they're not. They're the people who are administering the vote. It's these people passing laws that are trying to manipulate that process to make it harder to vote. So there's nothing inherently wrong with cleaning your voter registration rolls. There's something inherently wrong with the process of deliberately going about making sure you, you try and dilute certain communities from voting. So that's why litigation is so important. Uh, while you're sweeping up all the, what they call dead weight, uh, you are gonna be getting rid of young people African-American people, people of color, and people who don't have the means to stay in one property. If you're a homeowner, your address is not gonna change very much. If you're a renter, you're a student living on a campus, or if you are on public assistance, you may not live in the same apartment uh, or the same housing project or the same relative for a long time, or if you're homeless. Uh, one good thing about the National Voter Registration Act, we put a provision there that allows homeless people to register to vote by not requiring an address for registration. That's not the way in every state, but it is in federal law. And so these little things that no one pays attention to makes the big difference. And those are the kinds of reforms that we're fighting for, but it has to be administered. And so the biggest threat are those people who are trying to come in and say, we will not object with the same thing you started with. We will not accept the results of the election if we don't win. And they're basically making the job of the election administrator hard by bringing that level of politics into the, the simple process of counting votes. So that is, to me, the biggest threat is people who are trying to uh, tear down our institution of election administration. And that's the most dangerous thing we can have happen to our democracy uh, today. You've talked about how the uh, what you describe as the election debacles in 2000 in Florida and in 2004 in Ohio led to a variety of reforms. What were those debacles and the solutions that followed from them? That's a very good question. The, the biggest debacle in Florida was the fact that the massive turnout of voters, primarily African-American voters in certain parts of Florida, led to their being um, a situation where the the state election administration was not prepared for the large influx of voters, where they ran out of ballots or their voting machines were malfunctioning. So our democracy for a long time was built based on about half the people voting. But when you start creeping up just one, two, three, four percent, then it jams the system. So a lot of what was happening in Florida was the fact that we had uh, voter rolls that were being manipulated by some vendors who tried to say, or oh, these people were felons. Well, that's a process that has a lot to do with litigation and having your rights restored, but under some of these same existing archaic laws, some people were being thrown into that category. Some people were students on a campus who registered to vote, but there were so many voter registration cards, they didn't get entered in before the deadline of voter registration being cut off. So those students showed up to vote and their names weren't on the list. In some cases, it was just a simple fact that there were so many people voting in those old punch card machines that when you took your stylus and pushed the button in, it didn't go all the way through because there were so many of those 
chads inside the boxes that kept your vote from going through. That sounds like a simple mechanical problem, but that's what the Bush campaign argued were the votes that should be thrown out. There were tens of thousands of those votes that were called hanging chads that were basically votes that were pushed for Al Gore, but because there were so many people voted in that precinct, they were not able to push the punch card all the way through. And that's what Al Gore took to the courts to say, these votes are real votes. And most of them were African-American votes in Jacksonville and in Day County and Broward County. When those votes weren't counted and the Supreme Court stopped the recount in Florida, remember the state Supreme Court said, do a statewide recount. It was the US Supreme Court on an appeal from George Bush that said, stop the count. When that stopped counted, tens of thousands of votes that were cast legally by African-Americans, young people, students, low-income communities, even Jewish voters who had large turnouts in, in, in southern parts of Florida, votes weren't counted. And, and when they stopped the count, George Bush's totals were going down the more they counted. But when the Supreme Court stopped, it stopped 536 votes before they finished. And so if they had kept counting the votes, Al Gore would have won the state of Florida and he would have been the president. And so the Supreme Court intervened, as I said earlier, then. And in 2004, again, my home state, long lines. There were long lines in 2000, by the way, too. But in 2004, it was cold outside, not Florida. It was raining and there were lines going out the door, out the window, up and down the stairwell. There were broken machines. Uh, there were people whose voter registrations weren't ever counted. There was provisional ballots. You know, people would stand in line for two, three, four, five, six, even nine hours on some college campuses to vote. And then when they got there, they were in the wrong line because precinct one was in this line and precinct one was precinct two was in the line on the other side of the building. Those votes were cast out because they were in the wrong right church, wrong pew as we called it but right voting location but in the wrong line those and, votes should have been counted and that's another example of what i mean by institutional barriers to having your votes count it's easy to imagine that happening again i mean this is sort of the oldest simplest um thing in the voter suppression playbook you just don't have enough voting machines particularly in african-american or liberal urban areas and if it is uh you know people who have it in their interest to suppress that vote you can have all the voters you want in line but they're just going to be you know funneling into an inadequate um election station that can't handle them that's exactly what happens and they'll tell you well it's the same in every county here in ohio you got one early voting precinct location per county. Well, that's great if you're in a very small county with only a few thousand people. But if you're in an urban county with several million people, one location where you can vote early makes a big difference. People were in line in Ohio for seven, eight hours, three, two or three hours. And some people were in line for 10 minutes in other parts of the state that happened to be rural and predominantly white. And those are the kinds of things that were happening that we were trying to say, hey, this is a violation of the Voting Rights Act, too. But because we weren't a southern state and, and Wisconsin, they simply changed the definition of what an ID card required. Student ID cards don't have 
um, expiration dates on them, I guess. It was something along the lines of there's certain dates that were not required on a student ID. Well, they threw out all those student IDs that could be used for voting in the 2000, I believe it was the 14 election. I better get it that right. But it was an election, uh, part of the process in 2011 and 12, as you were talking about, where those kinds of things are being done by uh, Republicans in places like Wisconsin that had no coverage from the Voting Rights Act. In Ohio, they had no coverage on the Voting Rights Act. So we needed a strong Voting Rights Act to make sure no state could get away with those kinds of things and the states could be bailed in to pre-clearance if they had a history of those kinds of activities. And look, talk you know, talk about the problem with voter ID laws. You know, the um, some would have us believe, you know, the, the common refrain is, well, what's the problem with it that you... Uh, have to say who, you know, identify that you are the person you say you are. So tell us in actuality, what do voter ID laws do? Let's go back to Wisconsin. Uh, it was a known fact that among African-American men, the number of African-American men with current state-issued ID uh, was very low. But if that's the requirement for voting, now you're going back to the Jim Crow laws where you had to have a document that you had to pay for that was required to be used in order to get your driver's license. And if those requirements require an original copy of your birth certificate, you have to go order from the county records office and it costs a fee and you got to put it in the mail and then get it back. And then those are called um, another version of poll taxes. And so if we know that there's a discrepancy in the number of people of color who need ID, then why would you pass a law saying voter ID is required? Because you immediately dilute the vote. I understand the need for identification and that's fine. And we need to work on that. But the photo ID is a battle that we have not been able to win in the courts uh, very much. And so in Ohio and other places, we've been able to do things like you can bring your utility bill, you could bring uh, a, you know, a bank statement. There's other things you can bring beside a photo ID uh, that will allow you to vote. And so when states do those kind of things, uh, that's us again pushing to make sure the law isn't as effective on people of color and, and, uh, and people who've been disenfranchised historically. Let's talk about what's coming up in the Supreme Court in October, the case Merrill versus Mulligan that threatens to effectively destroy the Voting Rights Act. Explain what that case is about and what the stakes are. Well, it's, I have to uh, take a small pass on that, but I don't know all the details of that case particularly. Is that the North Carolina case? That is the, uh, it's about whether Alabama's congressional districts were drawn to discriminate oh. based on race. Oh. Um, and I think there are two voting rights cases coming up in October. So really just either one of those, if you give us the big picture, so we kind of have a sense of what's down the road. Well, I, I just talk about in general terms and talk about what's going on here in Ohio as well around redistricting. There's a battle on whether or not the Supreme Court should intervene in cases where there are uh, places where the voting rights of African-Americans or people of color are diluted based on the lines that were drawn. Now, in many cases, this is about the issue of whether or not you're doing cracking or packing, whether or not you're packing so many African-Americans to a district so that it dilutes their power outside of those districts, or whether or not you're breaking up that African-American vote in certain places so that you lose 
the ability for them to be able to elect their own represent representatives. The Supreme Court has to make a decision on this and make a decision on whether or not they will intervene in those cases. But in places like Ohio, where they have basically ignored the Supreme Court, state Supreme Court ruling that says your lines are gerrymandered because you have not taken into effect uh, the uh, constitutional changes and reforms were put in place by the people of Ohio. We're going back to the courts again because we have situations where, where the uh, Republican legislators are saying that the state Supreme Court does not have the final say in the, uh, in the legislative process of how votes are determined. And that's another case, the Harper versus Moore case that we're tracking as well. So there's some two bites of the apple that the Supreme Court may have that could really undermine section two of the Voting Rights Act and put us back into a situation, particularly in Alabama, where now not just Shelby, but something that threatens to undermine the strength of the other parts of the Voting Rights Act that have been working. So we, this Supreme Court, as you know, is a six to three conservative court. If we lose that part of the Voting Rights Act, then you are correct. We will be in a situation where we are thrown back to pre-1965 laws and we're going to be, you know, every man and woman for themselves in these states, every state for themselves. And we just can't let that happen. And the only way we can stop that is to put members of Congress in place that will uh, pass laws that will strengthen the Voting Rights Act and codify it into law and make sure the Supreme Court can't, un can't undo it. Now, the current state of that is that Congress, the House has passed the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, correct? And explain what that act will do. And um, of course, the Senate has, as it is currently constituted, uh, has not uh, passed it or uh, would require, you know, a supermajority, 60 votes, because it would be filibustered by Republicans. Um, just say a word about the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. Well, it's again named for John Lewis, our champion of voting rights. He, along with John Conyers, Congressman Conyers, and members of Congress over the years have fought to basically restore the protections of the Voting Rights Act that were taken out in 2013, but also to come up with a new formula that sets a certain limit to how many uh, litigation battles you can fight and lose before you're brought or bailed into you're bailed into protections where you require preclearance. And so if you're rewriting a law from 1965 that's 50 years old, we want to modernize it. We want to make sure states, no states can get away with some of the things that Alabama and Georgia and Mississippi and other states have been getting away with. And this would basically set new standards, a new formula, and also uh, strengthen some of the abilities of states, uh, of the federal government to enforce these laws and for people to bring litigation uh, where needed, where we don't have to wait for a 14 year battle in court to win certain laws. But these again are a lot of technical de details, but even if we passed a modicum of the John Lewis voting rights bill, it would stop a lot of what's happening right now in states. It would basically undo some of these state uh, laws that have been passed that have basically restricted the right to vote, have restricted, have, have given, state legislators the ability to put additional barriers in place. So that is the most important thing we could do, pass the John Lewis Act, uh, the Freedom to Vote Act, the laws that you know govern money and politics are all important. 
But the most important thing is that we can just get the stop states from doing what they're doing to change these laws now, put the brakes on that so that we won't have another debacle in 2024. If you have people being elected saying that I will not support, you know, uh, the results of the election, if we don't win, that's an anathema to democracy. That's never been the case. That's not what a democracy is defined as. And so we cannot let that happen. We have to pass the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. Hopefully we can do it while there's still a Democratic president and a Democratic House and a Democratic Senate. But the filibuster is the problem. I want to say one thing, if I can, that is probably not popular among most of my colleagues. But even if we were to reform the filibuster, my fear is that Republicans could easily come back and try to reinstitute the same law back in place again. And so we need to instead build a bipartisan uh, 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 coalition. There's people like Lisa Murkowski and, and uh, Susan Collins and others who've said, yeah, I can go along with some parts of this. I've talked to members of the Senate myself who said, well, I like to do it, but you know, this is uh, not very popular in my caucus. So they're afraid that the that the uh, Trump Republicans will uh, will go after them if they support this. And so we want to get rid of that idea that hyperpartisan politics will drive your vote on, on a Democratic bill. We want this bill to pass without the filibuster. They need to drop any filibuster and let the majority rule on this vote and sign it into law before we get to the 2024 election. Otherwise, you're going to see some chaos reemerge in 2024. Uh, if we don't put a stop to it now. Well, Greg Moore, I want to thank you for joining us this week on the Vermont Conversation. Well, thank you. I wish I had a, a brighter message to end on, but just say, hey, we can do this. But if you get the Beyond the Voting Rights Act book, it'll go into great detail about what we need to do. So thank you for having me on. Okay. <laughs>